Hello everyone and welcome to the Angry Robot podcast. I am so thrilled today to have two incredible guests for you. The first of which is AR's very own author, um, Stephen, who has recently released the most incredible fantasy heist book called The Moonsteel Crown. And also Robert Reddick, who is an amazing fantasy author, has an absolutely fantastic back catalogue to talk about. Now, I'm going to pass it over to them so that they can introduce themselves a little bit and tell us a bit about what they've been working on. Stephen, do you want to take us away? So I'm, yeah, Stephen Dees. I cut my teeth as a fantasy author. I've, I've, done, some, I've done some different things over the uh, last few years, but I'm really happy to be coming back to fantasy because it's where I feel most at home. The Moonsteel Crown is a story about three kind of down on their luck. Well, not quite deadbeats, but they're they're basically their life is wading through shit, and they then make a bunch of mistakes that make their life even more shit, and they have to wade <laughs> harder. And that's basically what it's about. It feels a bit like life, really. <laughs> Great. And Robert, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been working on and introduce yourself? Yes, indeed. Um, I'm Robert V. S. Reddick. And I've been writing epic fantasy now about uh, 16, 17 years. And I'm in the middle of my uh, second epic fantasy series, which is called The Fire Sacraments. Um, Book one was Master Assassins, which came out in 2018. And I'm very happy to say that the bigger, badder, weirder, longer sequel, (laughs) Sidewinders, is coming out in July this year at long last. And um, in a nutshell, this is a big anti-war war epic. It's also a story of a really intense love-hate relationship between two very strange brothers, and they are peasant soldiers caught up in a nasty religious war they wanted no part of, and they're trying to find their way to freedom. It's a lot more than that, too, but um, I could ramble on just giving you the barest plot outline for an hour, so I'll also <laughs> You two are friends, is that right? So you, you have known each other for a while. So how did you guys meet? We were both published by Golance at much the same time. Um, oh, right. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I entirely remember the, 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 the very first meeting, but you, you came over for a signing. Yeah, Easter sign, I think it was, wasn't it? I think we actually sat down and got to know each other at EasterCon. If my memory serves, and earlier than that, you kindly showed up when I uh, made yeah. an appearance at uh, Forbidden Planet. Did, oh, you're right. We went out that night, didn't we? That's where it started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where it was. Yes. And what a what a night that was. Yeah. It seems like we've known each other forever, but but it was then, and met you and Gavin and the whole crowd and a bunch of Gollum's people. Um, most of whom I've never seen face-to-face like that again, but we had a nice uh, pub evening. I mean, they, you came across the Atlantic for that, which we, we, we felt we ought to make the effort of like getting on a train for half an hour. <laughs> um, yeah, the days of cons. Um, do you guys miss them? Yes and no. I do. <laughs> Absolutely yes in yeah, my case. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit starved for face-to-face contact with people in the genre, with everyone else too, but... Um, uh, any um, any frustration and impatience with the, the vagaries of con life is right now a distant memory. I just miss I miss it all quite a lot. Um, that those rose colored glasses may not survive the reopening of the world, but I really miss it now. I miss I miss my people a lot. And what do you mean when you say yes and no, Stephen? Have you just been to a lot of them? No, I, I find uh, I'm not a very sociable person, really. Um, <laughs> I'm one of these people who's going, yes, lockdown, make it last longer. Um, Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, to stay in my hole. Right You're a writer's writer, Stephen. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit. So you're both kind of very well known for your fantasy writing. I mean, Stephen, you've had so many amazing um, trilogies and worlds that you've set up. Um, but you've also written in other genres. So... Do you find that kind of playing in a different sandbox with a different genre exercises different parts of your brain? Do you have any favorites? Do you have to like switch on and off when you jump in between things? How do you find it? So to a large extent, I was I, I would have said, no, nah, they're not that different to that question until I tried to write 
a contemporary crime novel. The last novel I wrote, I published, is a contemporary kind of domestic thriller-ish, um, but it's set in the current world. Well, not kind of current, the current world as it was like a year ago. It's a very different current world. And that I did find was quite different. Because in writing fantasy, you make up the world. And the fundamental difference when I thought about it is when you, when you make up the world, you make up the world and then you tweak the design of the world so that it emphasizes the theme of your story and it, and it gives the characters the journey that you want. And you can change the world to make it give the characters the journey you want. And you can do that in science fiction as well. And I'd even say you can kind of do it in historical fiction because you can pick and choose and you can be a little bit fast and loose with the facts and people won't notice. But when you're setting it things in the here and now, you just can't do that anymore. The world is the world. It's this iron fist of reality that you just mm. have to navigate and your characters are the ones that have to bend and your plot has to flex. And that's really irritating. I like <laughs> being able to change the world on a whim. Well, I guess that's why you're a writer. Um, how about you, Robert? So you have you written outside the genre? You've got a novel, is it The Conquistadors, which is set in the 1970s. Did you find that you have to kind of put on different hats and different brains when you're working between genre? Um, yes, but it, with, a, with a big caveat in that uh, I, I made the switch from a focus on mainstream slash literary writing to fantasy writing as one very big and for me quite disorienting switch. And then I didn't switch back and really haven't had much time to switch back for a long time. I mean, the uh, contract with Gollum's for the Red Wolf Conspiracy and sequels came along. They wanted the books quickly as, as publishers do, understandably, as readers do. And the books turned out to be quite large. So I, I, I made a entire translocation into fantasy writing and haven't gone back yet. I think that in the long arc of my career, I will be writing outside of genre again, as well as inside. I, I love both quite a bit. And I really agree with what Stephen was saying about the, the world being um, yours to, to tweak and change and direct and shape when it's your invention and the the sort of strictures that writing in this world um, puts puts on a writer. I was I was acutely aware of that when writing about Argentina in my first novel, which is you know unpublished still. Um, in that the you know I was writing about a very sensitive political time, the uh, late seventies during the dictatorship in the Guerra Sucia, and although I'd spent quite a bit of time in Argentina. This was um, treading into sensitive area, really the defining national tragedy of, of Argentina. And mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was a great lesson in uh, what, A, how much I had to get right, and B, how much I had to respect the historical record such as it is and the limits of my comprehension of that record. But I think it's interesting for, for fantasy listeners to maybe reflect on is, um, is that research becomes world building to a large degree when you're writing in a secondary world. I don't know if you quite would agree, Stephen, or not, but um, you know, often one needs to do a bit of both. But uh, I found that in with the Argentina novels, it was excavate, excavate, look for the truth, let that inform the world that I'm imagining. And with the Chathrand books and and the world of Master Assassins and Sidewinders, it's been build, 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 imagine as richly as you can and related but very different activities. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, entirely. I think that interesting thing actually that spins out of that is, Stephen, you kind of, um, your ideas for Moonsteel started life as a D&D &D campaign, is that right? So this kind of imagination build uh, came from the brains of like playing a game almost rather than from the the history informing it but I guess that gave you did that give you kind of a sense of each of the characters by role-playing them were you thinking already that it would make a terrific book well okay there's a bit of a longish story here and I won't go into the full detail of it because I have talked about this elsewhere um, but <clears throat> once upon a time um, I got into role-playing games and I decided I wanted to run a game and I had a bunch of lame-ass ideas uh, for what I wanted the game to be. 
and I, that, that was basically the, the characters were supposed to be like reasonably good, reasonably sort of good, and they were going to help this. They were, were going to help this person on their quest to get home, and that was the story that 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 uh, that, that, that game was going to be. And then they would get a reward at the end. And what they actually did was stay in a pub and stab each other in the back, and largely mm. ignore the plot. <laughs> occasionally fought the plot. Um, basically refused to do anything useful whatsoever. They were just avaricious, money-grabbing bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and that led me to write to start going. Well, I'm going to write the story that I wanted this to, to be, and and that that was never that was never published. Um, and no, no, nor should it ever be because it was just crap. Um, <laughs> but that then led me to to write the story of how this situation had arisen, which I which I did write, and it was still crap. And in writing that, the main character who was supposed to be pivotal to the story that I'd originally wanted to write ended up dying. So I didn't do a very good job of setting up the sequel that I was going to write. Um, but it, but, but the writing of that then created this world that I quite liked in much more detail than, than I had for the, for the game. So, so years later I decided oh, I'm going to run the sequel to that story that I wrote as a game. So that was kind of how the game started. It was always, set up as a just in terms of story I, I never had any at the time any real concept of novelizing it but it was set up as a, in, in story terms as a sequel to this other story which gave the world a fair amount of sort of depth I think mm-hmm. more than what we were used to playing with and I'd set up the sort of plot of the uh, of this of, the, of this game to be the you know the next step in the in, in in this sort of larger plot that I had had going on that wasn't working out terribly well, and this time I had a bunch of characters who actually started to follow it, so it kind of worked. So if I, eventually, uh, I I wrote it I wrote it up years and years and years ago. There there was a sort of a, a draft novel, I suppose, um, and then I never went back to it uh, until well until we started talking, I suppose. <laughs> But it was always there in the back of my oh. mind, it, and and it did actually inform. I mean, that some some people have noticed that there are Easter eggs in other books that ref, that, that refer to this. Myla appears in another book from years ago, um, because it was set in the same world as this game had had, had been. Okay, now I have to say, now I finally understand, Stephen. I was afraid when you started telling the story, and from you know something that um, that Mikhaila had said actually. You referred to some avaricious, money-grubbing bastards, and I was afraid you were about to say that those were your trio of main characters here, and I was going to object and say, well, they're not that bad. <laughs> even even <laughs> things is really not, you know, I was going to speak up on their behalf because they're actually quite sympathetic. So, Stephen, now I understand something. Uh, you began that narration saying, that you were writing about or thinking about avaricious bastards, but those were that was not a reference to your characters in the Moonsteel Crown. I was going to speak up on their behalf because they're actually a lot nicer than that. Even Sings, who is a unrepentant thief, has a lot more going for him than just avarice. So I'm glad to hear that those were those were role playing characters, but you weren't you weren't slandering your own wonderful threesome quite the same quite to that tune i like that you were ready to leap in and defend them um so was i i was a bit like no 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 they're great how dare you no, say this like... they're my favorites um robert i wanted to ask you a little bit about um sailing well ships in fact because you sat one of your quartets on a boat did you do a ton of research? Are you a sailor? How did you learn about that world? Tell me. Oh, I, I can't, um, I can't uh, gild this uh, answer. <laughs> I am so far from a sailor, it's just laughable. <laughs> I grew up in Iowa, which is as far from any shore as you can get in North America. Um, so yes, I did quite a lot of research. And that did involve going out on some tall ships. But uh, I was not raised with the, the salt in my veins at all. Um, the research was immense and, and fascinating and became um, obsessive. I eventually had a bookshelf full of, of works on every nautical 
log in you know the history of the English language practically, and lots and lots about the the ins and outs of rough weather seamanship and really the, the construction and the, and the architecture of these tall ships, which at their time may have been the most complex thing that human hands had ever built. Um, so yes, lots and lots of research, um, which I think might have been an optional way to go about telling the story in hindsight, at least to <laughs> some degree. You know, I want to say one of the things I've always loved and envied about, about Stephen's work is the balance that you get, Steve, between generosity of information and economy of storytelling. I mean, I think in epic fantasy, there's a natural urge we have to be very generous and to, to you know, give a lot of this wild vision that we've had to the reader. But, I mean, if anything, I am generous to a fault. And there are readers that love that and can't have enough. There are readers that say, oh, my God, he's exhausting me. I can't, I can't, I can't stay this deep in the world all the time. For this many pages, and that's fine. You know, you have to write the sort of books you're you're drawn to write, and let the cards fall. But I think another writer might have said, "Oh, story on a big boat. Um, I'll learn enough about that, and I'll get right on with it." Um, my obsessive tendencies meant that I had to feel I really, really, really knew if a boat of that size could be built. If so, how could it sail? How many miles of rigging would be required? How many people would be needed to move? The, the you know the backstays from one position to another, and uh, so long way to say yes. There was a lot of research, <laughs> not quite so much in this new series, although I had to do a good amount of reading about desert ecology and about mm-hmm. um, about how human societies can evolve and uh, react and, and more or less take such ecosystems on when they dive into them in the form of a caravan and so on, and then siege research since the whole trilogy winds up telling this tale of an epical siege of a walled city. Um, But as I said before, I think it's often dreaming a world into existence rather than grabbing the books and researching it. And that's uh, something I think was was the biggest change in my life when I went to fantasy from mainstream literary writing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's all horses for courses, though, I think. And one of the things I really enjoyed in the Chathran trilogy was that you had just such a sense of place coming from that ship. It, it felt so real. Thank you. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a product of all that research. And, and I would say the same about um, Master Assassins, that, that the world is, it, it feels like it's meticulously realized. And if... If that's what you want, and I know it's not for everyone, but if that's what you want, it's just beautiful. Thank you very much. Um, and yet I will always envy your ability to get on with the story. <laughs> As you say, it's different beasts. But uh, I, I often yeah. think, you know, when I grow up, I'll learn to be uh, concise. And, uh, I, I did find a, a, a bit of a trick to that, actually, which I, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you. I'd like it. Um, I found that in the first, I think in the first fantasy dragon book, I dumped too much information, possibly in the second one as well. And part of the reason for that, I think, was because I was still discovering the world because I hadn't done all of your meticulous research. And and, and I had to write it to discover it. So there is actually now, I think I did it between books two and three, there's a 50,000 plus word gazetteer of the dragon realms, which is online somewhere. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh my God, what great reading! Uh, it's like not being edited or anything, and it's it's a bit it's a bit rubbish. But that that gave me that gave me the, <laughs> that gave me the world to that, that 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 got all the all the detail out of me, so that I didn't feel the need to just put in everything about everything that's crossed my mind as I was writing it, and I'm rubbish at taking it out again. Uh, it got even. But you worse see, Eleanor, me. talk about generosity. I mean, to do that, Steve, that's, <laughs> I've never heard of a writer doing that. It's like giving away your source code. I mean, that's really great. I mean, I've written some plenty of goodies for my readers, but fifty thousand words. Wow. It gets it gets it gets even worse because I did it again for the for the second the the the, the Silver Kings trilogy, and that ran to eighty odd thousand words. Oh my lord! And I just couldn't bring myself to edit it enough to put it online, even so, it's just sitting in a pocket. So Steve, do you get do you get like do you get mail about stuff like that from your readers saying, 
your gazetteer describes the the realm of of X, you know, as as a matrilineal society. But then here we have a king. You get that kind of like people um, saying that your published fiction is contradicted by your by your notes. <laughs> If they've got that much of your notes, if, I, if I'm honest, I think there's probably like two people in the world have ever even discovered that the gazetteer <laughs> exists and neither could be bothered to read it. Oh, now you're in trouble because you've mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, people are going to find it now and yeah. you're going to get some complaints about the consistency of potatoes. <laughs> but you see, this also, this suggests to me uh, the role-playing game origins of your writing gifts too, Steve, because isn't that the impulse of every person who's been a dungeon master is to, to write that gazetteer in some form, but for oneself, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think when I started writing it, I was thinking of the, uh, the, the role-playing game that would be set in the Dragon Realms, of course. Ah, uh, okay. Uh-huh. Yes. So your D&D world, so your kind of it, obviously, D&D is a little bit about these individual party members deciding their character's actions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you've spoken a little bit about this, but um, did you find it quite frustrating seeing the kind of characters who you'd kind of put on this course of what you wanted them to do and then seeing the people you know play them and decide to do something completely different with them? How did that gel with your kind of authorial um, power, I guess, Stephen? Uh, well, it, it's it's a different beast, and it and it it only worked out the the way it did because I had I had players who were fundamentally interested. They, they were not at all interested in power gaming. They were interested in playing a story and playing characters. Mm-hmm. So the characters of Myla and Fings and Seth are fairly true to the way they were actually played. Um, there've been some 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 tweaks and some edges and some bits mm-hmm. of backstory have been added and the incident where where things hit a zombie with a chair and scored a critical and then spent <laughs> spent literally a game year <laughs> insisting that chairs were the best form of weapon against the undead <laughs> that I had to cut th- things like that but they were the right sort of things to cut they they were totally in line with his character i've had it with other stories but 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 with that one actually there there really wasn't much of a conflict uh, I was quite quite lucky there. Yeah, and I guess it's quite fun to see people play with these these characters and see what comes out that perhaps was a surprise to you about them, or were you not ever surprised? Oh, I was very surprised. The, the, the whole thing about Finks and his superstitions was just that that was something that that that, that Nigel, the player, brought to the character, um, and he just would ask me, "Well, what's do you have any?" lucky stuff wait what's what's lucky i I want want my character to be superstitious and i go i don't know haven't thought about that um so so just just make something up and i'll run with it so so he did um the the whole business about you know if you've read the book you you know that seth is walking walking an interesting path Mm. um and that was done very much as a, as a as a as a matter of tacit cooperation, as I laid down the pieces and Matt went and picked them up, and he knew exactly what he was doing and what he was letting his character do, uh, and 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 just ran with it, which was great. That is really great because you couldn't design a better character arc than Seth, I think, and yet it wasn't one you just stepped back and deliberately built for this book. It 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 grew out of play. If I'm following you, I, I built it for the character. Um, oh, ahead of the game, before you, before you. Well, well, not exactly ahead of the game. I laid the seeds of various opportunities for paths for the characters to follow, and then when they seemed to follow, want to follow a particular path, I would then well, throw away the other paths and start dropping down the you know the, the the next seed for them on that particular path they seemed to be following. But in, in in Seth's case, it was very much a case of yeah, we both know what we're doing here, don't we? Yeah, we do. This isn't going to end well, is it? No. I think one of the things I really like about it is when you're reading The Moonstill Crown, you've really got this, the experience of reading it is is playful. It feels kind of fun and you kind of rush head on to these decisions that these characters are making. And I, I'm sure that it partly came from this, this sense of it being birthed out of a game. It's just a lot of fun to experience reading it when it's been kind of crafted into something else. Robert. 
am I right in thinking that you're a teacher as well as a writer? That is correct. I am. Yes. Amazing. So how is the experience of teaching? So are you teaching specifically in genre? Has teaching helped you write better? Have you learned anything from your students? What's it like? Well, it's, it's wonderful. Um, there's, there's, always a, there's always a need for more time as a writer. So the only thing I would ever say um, as a potential negative for teaching is just, you know, you, you want to give as much of yourself to, to the teaching as you possibly can. And the same impulse, obviously, is at play with your writing. You want to tell the very best story you can. And, and there's only so much Robert to go around. So, you know, that's a natural conflict. It's not one that frustrates me, though, because um, I've been lucky to be teaching really only in situations that, um, that I love. Uh, and uh, from 2018 until last uh, May, that was at the MFA program in a low residency program here in the States, uh, Stone Coast, um, which is part of the University of Maine. And it was the, the first accredited university to, to officially open its arms to, um, to genre. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a wonderful opportunity. There's still very few of these that do, although they're, you know, MFAs are um, everywhere you turn. Um, very few still uh, are prepared to come out in public and say, yes, we love science fiction. Yes, we love fantasy. And don't think less of us. You know, there, there's still that built-in um, and rather ridiculous assumption. And I think, honestly, it's, it's sort of an accident of, of how marketing of fantasy and science fiction has gone in the States. But uh, we're, it's, it's presupposed that if you're writing fantasy, you may have less interest in, in craft and language. And that's, you know, it's, it's a silly assumption. I mean, I think um, there, there are different uh, spectra that we can uh, assess um, the quality of writing on rather than whether it includes tales of dragons or a secondary world or time travel. All of those can go on in a book that has no, uh, no great ambition for craft or very great ambition for craft. But to get back to your question about, um, about teaching and how that's been for me personally, Oh, yes, I learned so much from my students, both listening to them and the, the wonderful insights they have um, for each other. I mean, they don't generally get a crack at my own work, but for each other. Um, and then just, um, I think that when you have to articulate an idea uh, about writing it, such that a, an emerging writer uh, is ready to receive it, you have to think it through at a level that um, just remains implicit or, or semi-conscious if you're trying to apply it for yourself. And certainly tangles that I get into as a writer to this day, when I see them in another form and in another writer, whether that's a peer or a student or so on, it's, um, it's very illuminating. And I'm sure that my students have improved my writing simply by putting the challenge to me of, of trying to help them with theirs over the years. So yes, it's wonderful. It's just, you know, I wish I could clone myself and do both 24 hours a day, the writing and the teaching. Yeah. And Stephen, you do, so your day job is physics and aerospace. And have you learned anything from that to bring to your kind of sci-fi writing? Or is writing kind of a way to get away from your day job? Uh, yeah, writing is a way to get away from my day job. Um, I, I do enjoy my day job, but it's very, very different. It, it's very much a one's the left brain, one's the right brain. I can't mm -hmm. wait which, remember which way round it's supposed to go. I was, uh, I was educated as a theoretical physicist. With uh, my aspirations were to go and, you know, break the universe by hitting particles together at CERN or something like that, um, which uh, I was not a good enough physicist to do that, but. It steered me away from science fiction for a while because I thought, well, but but I'm going to go, well, you can't do that because that doesn't work. You can't do that because that doesn't work. And no, physics says no. And then eventually it just it took a long time for me to realize that actually the way science fiction works is started to say, well, fuck all that. Um, mm -hmm. What if? What if it did work? That's the whole point. Shut up, Steve. Just what if it <laughs> did work? That's the idea of the whole bloody genre. So tell us from this, so you're, um, well, we're working on um, the sequel to Moonstill Crown at the moment. Um, what can you tell us about it? What can we expect? Oh, well, 
<clears throat> Fings is going to have a fairly rough time. Mm. Seth Poor is Fings. Going... Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 almost like they like Fings and Seth want to just fuck up so that they can complain <laughs> about it, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, Seth is going to have a fairly bad time on on the whole. Uh, oh no. Um, Myla's going to have a fairly bad time. Um, you'll start to see where their arcs are going, I think, by the end, or where, where, where they could go. The world is, most of it is set in a, it, it's set in a different city, but it's still, an, it's still a city story. And, and, and there is a, there is a heist. In fact, there are a couple of heists, only mostly the heists are stealing people rather than things this time which makes life a bit interesting when some people don't want to be stolen. Mm. Um, and the world, the, 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 there's, there's been rumblings in the Moonsteel crown of, of, of much bigger events going on. Well, those bigger events are going to show up and, and break things uh, in, in the book of endings. Uh, I think I probably should stop now. Oh, and there's a plague, but I oh, oh. don't talk about that. Yay. We can't, we can't talk about plagues. <laughs> it's too real. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry about the plague. Uh. <laughs> We're going to hold you responsible. Robert, you've got a book coming out later on this year. With more plague. It's more plague. Right. Guys, I think I, it might be your fault. <laughs> I, I can tell you without a moment's hesitation that if I had known what was going to happen in this world, I would not have chosen this moment to write a plague story mm. as it is i can only sit back and and just feel utterly spooked at the coincidences i guess because really 98 percent of everything to do with the plague and the plot for the entire trilogy was worked out before i ever heard the word covid or knew anything about covid and yeah uh, me too Yes, and it's just very odd. I mean, this the, the real name for this, the, the, the people call it the world plague, but the um, another name for it is the throat rust. And, you know, like COVID, it, um, it can end up uh, killing people through a kind of suffocation or a want of oxygen. And uh, it's, uh, you know, very much tied up with uh, issues of quarantine and power and I think that what I was responding to uh, when I dreamed up this story was, I guess, a very long-standing rage at how some crises, i.e. diseases in the world, but also uh, structural poverty and, and the like, some are perceived as great crises that must be must be solved at all costs and immense resources are put into the solving of those problems and others not so much because they seem to affect people far away from the centers of power and perhaps they're just in a worst case scenario sort of in a ma managed stasis and um, you know as was the case with malaria for decades and decades and um, you know we're far from out of the woods with malaria yet and and um, I, I worked for many years in uh, the peripheries of international development, environmental justice, and um, poverty alleviation. I mean, I worked for Oxfam for so on. Um, and it's, it's just everywhere. When you begin to, to look at that, I also went to school in a program called Tropical Conservation and Development. And um, the, the inequities for how the world responds to crises have been, you know, a given for throughout the modern era, um, and uh, so that was sort of the the fuel behind dreaming up a plague story. And then, lo and behold, a plague erupts in the world. And I'm not sure this is the answer to your question at all. I don't know I'm <laughs> did, did you okay. find that having a plague right outside your front door all of a sudden changed changed anything? for you in, in, in terms of the, of the writing? It changed the way you felt about it, the way you wanted to write it at all? I mean, weirdly, no, because it, 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 I think only in the sense that my, my general level of anxiety was ramped up to 10 because of, you know, just how could it not be looking out the window and, you know, add to that the, the 
ceaseless daily nightmare of having Donald Trump in the White House and you know wondering what he was going to blow up that morning. Um, and these were not unrelated. Uh, you know, that was his response to the plague was I'd, four o'clock in the morning every day for months. I'd be thinking about it. Um, so, so it, my tension was higher, and that always affects one's writing. I think the you know a scene may come out as just that much more um, dire depending on how you're feeling on a given day, but it didn't change the plot in the least. It didn't it didn't change where the story was going. Because really, d despite the presence of a plague is so central to the story, I was inhabiting another world each day when I went into the story writing time, you know, whatever time I could set aside each day. And um, it, you just play by different rules in that world, different history. You know, colonization didn't happen in that world in anything like the way it did in our world. And um, so many things were different. So you would think that it would have just changed everything but emotionally it changed things and logistically it didn't strange but true can i ask you a little bit about um turtles a turtle <laughs> do you rescue turtles and can you tell me everything right. about it and also send me some photos of the turtles well, it, i um <laughs> i guess this is going to have to pass for something of an effort of levity in my online bio uh the <laughs> simple fact is of this little rumor is my spouse and I seem to have a gift over the 30 years that we've been together of always showing up when the largest, most dangerous, most finger amputating alligator snapping turtles are trying to crawl across mm -hmm. roads. And because we're both obsessed with wildlife, we're just animal nuts. We swerve to the side of the road, we jump out in a panic, we stop traffic, and we try to rescue these biting, hissing beasts that don't want to be rescued. And they, you know, they sound very grateful. <laughs> yeah, they're in the middle of traffic, still, you know, slimy, but with cars going to cars to either side of them and, and in danger of being crushed. And, and they're rather endangered. So, yes, we, you know, we're trying to get a hold of a back foot without it whipping around and biting us. And um, it's just a comedy that um, never stops but yes we do love turtles i have a i have a three-striped mud turtle that i hatched myself and he's now 28 years old and um uh, he's a wonderful companion uh but it's yeah what can i say um i lived among alligators in a in a cypress swamp for four years down in florida and i guess it all started there um became very very fond of alligators too i can't say i've met an alligator um but they seem quite toothy. So, you know, um, I might steer clear. <laughs> I wanted to ask both of you a bit about books, films, TV, games. What have you been doing to pass the time in this uh, glorious pandemic uh, where we're all at home most of the time? Stephen? Uh, well, I'm a bit of a gamer. So uh, I've spent, I spent most of December when I should have been writing, actually most of January when I should have been writing as well. Um, playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And that led me to then go and realize that I had never watched Vikings. Um, so I've spent most of February watching Vikings, which is quite interesting after having played Valhalla because you see a lot of the characters that appear in the game are also in the story, right, in, the, in, in the series. I'm a bit addicted mm -hmm. to Vikings at the moment. Uh, I haven't played Valhalla yet. Um, I was kind of half hoping that I would buy myself a PS5, but it's proved impossible. So um, I think I might just break and order it on PS4 at some point. Um, would you recommend it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the, probably the best Assassin's Creed game since Ezio. It, it runs fine on a PS4 too. It, uh, it, it, it crashes every couple of sessions and that's just annoying. And there are some interesting glitches, but it wasn't didn't it wasn't too bad in that respect and and in terms of sort of world and storyline uh yeah i think it's one of the best ones they've done for a while just my opinion also i like vikings did i mention that i like vikings i just thought we hadn't noticed so how many series <laughs> deep are you into the vikings uh, i'm somewhere in season four now okay deep in the wilds how about you robert what have you been watching or playing or reading well, overall, I've found uh, I, I'm not going as dark with any of my reading or watching as I might have at, 
in other times for you know reasons that we've been discussing a bit. It, you know, the world is going down the tubes rather fast, and um, mm -hmm. I can still go dark. What I can't do is I, I have no I have no patience with stories that are just despairingly dark. Yeah. Um, there, there's a you know there's a spectrum there, right? And and on another kind of spectrum, there's there's ironic, and I love that. And then there's just like, there's just like hopeless cynicism and I stay, stay out of that zone. So, but that, that's just sort of the flavor of that, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going in the direction of the kind of salines of the world or the, 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 the darkest of the grim darks right now is, is not for me, even though I've been called grim dark, which confuses me a little bit. Um, but you are not grim dog. Thank you. I don't think so. Um, but uh, it, it, I don't really have anything against it. I just didn't feel like I fit there. But um, uh, more like grim, weird, humorous. I don't know. But um, but in terms of television, I guess I should confess I've become an utter anglophile the last year or so. I mean, I was to some degree, but I've been devouring, devouring. British police procedurals. And my latest obsession is a man named Paul Abbott, who he's done this thing in Manchester called No Offense, which my, my spouse discovered. And it's indescribably inventive and it's inventive on like the, the minute by minute weirdness and unexpected twists in the behavior of his characters. I mean, every single character is just an absolute nutcase but very high functioning in that case. Yeah, um, I watched the first series, but I haven't seen the other two because there are three series now, aren't there? That's right. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, utterly addictive, and, it's, and it's it is incredibly upsetting. I mean, we turned to each other the other night and said, "We're going to go and and pick up a volume of Winnie the Pooh after this, just so we can sleep at night." You know, so uh, but. So that, you know, um, and um, I, I think I've split my reading life about 50-50 between genre and non-genre. I'm sometimes just reading something that may have very little plot, but wonderful language is, is a tonic these days. Um, you know, I read about boring lives in the 19th century or something like that um, to forget, um, you know, the impending collapse of civilization. Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to ignore, but sometimes mm. things, you know, take over in your brain. Amazing. Well, what I'll do is I'll link those recommendations because I don't know about you, but I'm I'm running short of uh, things to watch every now and then. I like hit a dry period, and I'm like, oh, I've I've got nothing else left on my list, and I really urgently need distractions. Well, I'm going to recommend a French crime series to both of you then: Engrenage Ooh. or Spiral. Um, it's 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 ah. it's been it's been put out on the BBC as Spiral. Um, the original French title is Engrenage, which I assume is French for Spiral, and it will teach you how to swear fluently in French. Amazing! That's oh, all I want. Good. I'm getting married in France next year, so I will be ready. Uh -huh. uh, well, assuming we're allowed to leave the country. I mean, we'll see. Who knows? <laughs> I've been watching uh, Call My Agent, the French series on Netflix. I don't know yeah, if either we, of you have seen it. We, we started watching that. We, we got into a French thing after Engrenage, which Lupin as well. Yeah. Lupin, yeah. yes, that Lupin was lots of fun. Yeah. I've heard it's really good. I haven't got around to that yet. I'm trying to catch up on season four of Call My Agent, which is a huge amount of fun. Um, though I get a lot of secondhand embarrassment from watching it. So mm -hmm. sometimes I have to hide whilst people do terrible things. Um, but that's great. Thank you so much for those recommendations. And thank you so much for being here. But I, before we split off, so we've spoken a little bit, Stephen, about your um, next book, which is obviously um, coming out next year with AR. And Robert, we know that you've got another book coming this summer. But do you guys have anything else that you're working on, which is exciting that you want to tell us about that might not be quite ready yet? Robert? Well, uh, so I guess so, yeah. The 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 third book I'm I'm just getting off the ground with now that you know the second book is in the pipeline and about to come out and the third novel is simply called Siege which gives you an idea of the subject matter but you know mm -hmm. everything all the roads in the trilogy have been moving towards this sort of pivotal moment this pivotal moment when the city of Kazralis that has stood unconquered for three thousand years is 
facing with the irresistible force that has never been levied against it before. And, you know, the world will never be the same. And um, I guess it's something that might be a bit of a um, parallel with Steve's writing, that isn't the concern or has not been the concern at all of my main characters, because, you know, as I, as I say, they're peasant soldiers, they were drafted into this business and didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but it, it threatens to eclipse their lives and they, they have to find a way into becoming significant in order to carry on with the lives they always wanted and, and dreamed of. And so, so there's that going on. And then outside of that, I do have a, a little book I'm slowly working on called The Silent War, which is the fifth tale in the lives of the characters of the Chathran Voyage universe. It's very much a standalone, but it concerns the events and the people that are, are set up at the very end of the Chathran Voyage Quartet. So um, I hope to get to that. I uh, hope to find it a publishing home. Um, it'll be a, a bit of time yet before it's out in the world. And then mm -hmm. uh, for the first time in years, I'm doing some short fiction as well, which is just delightfully fun. Uh, I haven't written short in so long and it's hard. <laughs> it's really tough, but I enjoy it. It's quite a nice change of pace, I think, switching between like novel length projects to shorter projects sometimes. It's it's like a, a different sort of challenge refreshes you. Especially your when brain. the books are 670 pages as this yes. as <laughs> Sidewinders is going to be. Yeah. And how about you, Stephen? Is there anything you're working on? Well, I'm sort of noodling around with all sorts of things at the moment. Um, the, the, the thing that I'm trying to work on is a is a sci-fi novella, and I'm going to just agree with Robert, and we'll both cry in a corner about how bloody hard it is to write <laughs> short things. It's just yeah. <laughs> short things in a confined space where you have to make your point quickly. Ah, oh, um, why can't I have a sprawling world? Ah. I mean, um, you are in charge. You know that. Uh, yes, yes. But the, the sort of point of it was supposed to be kind of small and confined and, and, and just explore this one thing. Short story writers get to finish things all the time. <laughs> when yeah, you write I hate them for fantasy, that too. You know, you, you might go years without being able to write the end. <laughs> well, not you, Steve. I mean, you go, you're like lapping me six times. You know, I'm, the, I'm like the the greyhound that forgets to run and you've gone six times around the, the course. You're so much faster than me. But... Yeah, but, but one of your words is worth 10 of mine. So there's that. <laughs> well, I always thought so. No. no, that's very nice of you to say, but it's so not true. <laughs> I, I was, I, I started to write, I, I've been, yeah, I've been looking at science fictiony stuff and I, I did start to write something uh, and I thought, all right, now what shall I have? All right, let's have a post-apocalyptic planet hopping sci-fi thing uh, in which uh, oh, most of the population everywhere has, due to some catastrophe, been turned into zombies. That sounds fun. So I wrote a bit of that and then, and then I got to the bit where you kind of have to think a bit about, well, why are they zombies? And then it's like, ah, oh, Steve, you're writing a fucking plague story again. Stop it with the fucking plague <laughs> stories. So then I thought, I've got this other story that I've been thinking about. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a time travel story. Okay, so I start on that. Like, God damn it, time travel story. It's a really fucking difficult. I don't want to do this. Um, uh, oh, uh, time travel is such a pain in the ass. Yeah. It can be great results, but oh, if you want a way to tie yourself up in knots and not sleep at night, just write it. I down. want to write something optimistic. I want to write an optimistic story. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh <laughs> does time travel. Let's team up, Steve. Four cute cats save the world. Sorry, well, well, we'll sort of five figure advance for that, you know. Winnie the Pooh, time travel. Uh, done, sold. Uh, you can't take it back. Someone no, take listening back. to this is like someone listening to this has just switched off the podcast and run back to their laptop, and it's like typing out something that's going to sell like hotcakes right now. Well, that's great. I think those all projects sound very interesting, though, Stephen. I think um, you might be banned from pandemic materials. Yeah, yeah. for future it sounds like you keep falling down a very specific well um, but it's so great and what I'm going to do for all the listeners here is I'm going to link um, Stephen's new book and um, Robert's book which is coming up so that you can click through and buy them 
Um, obviously they are both fantastic and you should leap onto them if you want a distraction because um, they do have a little bit of joy in them, which is much needed in these hard times. Can I throw in one more thing? Uh, yes. In light of the fact that all the bookshops are closed and it is a terrible time to be putting a book out if no one really knows who you are um, in the first place. Um, can I suggest that Robert and I just punt something out there and say, look, here's, here's a book that I read recently by, by someone you may not, or may not have heard of, but not a big name that I really liked and, and would recommend. Um, I, I'm going to go with The Devil's Blade by Mark Alder, um, mm. which uh, if you like my if you like the Moonsteel Crown for Myla, then that's probably a shoe in. Um, it has the best comedy sedan chase through through uh, Louis XIV's Versailles Palace that you will ever read, and it has a a kick-ass sword-wielding heroine who takes no shit, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I love Mark Alder's stuff. That sounds great. Um, I didn't realise he had something recent out, so I will be buying that. That is a great recommendation. Robert, how about you? Yes, I just read something very out of character for me because I, I don't generally go, I mean, I'll read horror, but not when it gets into body horror and, and that sort of thing. That, that isn't my thing. That said, I just read The Boatman's Daughter by Andy Davidson, and it is such a tour de force. His language is just incredible. It's a crazy deep bayou southern gothic you know tale that could only be told in the, the south of the united states um but the characterization is spot on it's a great story it's you know it's beautifully written and i the, the big caveat is if you don't like violence don't go near it because it, <laughs> it, it is unsparing well if, if you like southern gothic ah, oh, you, you got to read some john horner jacobs a lush and seething hell is just mm, delicious. Great. Well, I will link both of those recommendations below. Um, so hopefully people can get out there and support authors, because as you rightly point out, Stephen, it is a very tough time, especially in the UK, because all of our bookshops are currently shut. Though I believe you have bookshops open in the US. Is that right, Robert? They are in many places. They're open. Yeah. Um, we're mm -hmm. uh, for better or worse um, with wildly varying degrees of caution, you know, state by state, you know, roll the dice and see how much of a risk you're taking. But, um, but I would just say too, to readers, you know, take a chance on something in somebody you haven't heard of. In addition to, you know, going out and getting the next uh, George R. R. Martin, whenever it shows up, of course, you're going to do that. But also, you know, try one of these authors you haven't seen. And, and it, it can be like discovering a, uh, a single malt scotch that you might never otherwise taste. You know, everyone loves Glen Fittich or everyone knows Glen Fittich at the very least, but there's so much else that might just be just suited to you. And this, you know, this is the time to go and support those, those authors too. Yeah, because there's some amazing stuff coming out from um, authors right now. Honestly, every kind of debut we published last year was such a thrill and was so exciting to put into the world. And it's so great to see readers support and to buy and to talk about and recommend it to their friends. So as always, keep talking and keep reading because um, it means the world to authors. But more importantly, you'll have a great time. So, you know, uh, it's absolutely worth it. But thank you so much um, for joining us. It was great to have you all. Um, and I will see you next month for the next AR um, podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having blast. us.